It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, But perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 from Saddam Hussein's bunker here in 2021. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phyllis Gove. And with us today, direct from the pages of Entertainment Weekly magazine, Darren Franich. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm, I'm honored to be the Spike Jones of this group. We're, we're driving, <laughs> You're the we're ice. Dri- 
I was going to say you're the ice cube, but Phil is obviously the ice cube. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm okay. I, I'm okay being the fourth person in Three Kings as we drive over the border into uh, yeah. who knows what. Really, this is going to be an interesting movie to talk about. I am obviously the Wahlberg. Um, <laughs> I'm <laughs> everyone knows that. Phil, you, Phil, you could be the Clooney, which right. makes sense because your favorite show is ER. And uh, it's one of them, yeah, for sure. And he was shooting know. ER while making this movie. So yes, he was. Yeah. Um, Darren, uh, thank you so much again for joining. Uh, as I said to you before, this podcast is occasionally an entertainment weekly appreciation podcast. Um, I, uh, Darren, Darren is, you know, well known to podcast audiences as one of the, uh, the top drafters on screen drafts. Our podcast Phil and I are going to be going on tonight. Uh, I just want to kind of set, set up where Phil and I's, Phil and my minds are right now. We're doing a Jerry Bruckheimer draft tonight. We have each watched each watched twenty five Jerry Bruckheimer films, so many. and in the middle stuck a three Three Kings, which is Jerry Bruckheimer, but like you know, with a bullet going through and bile filling up the hole. <laughs> so we we our brains are kind of like real. This is a weird thing to watch in the middle. Yep. Um, of a lot of Bruckheimer films, but um, so I, I I do also just say that because as I've been watching these Bruckheimer films, it occurred to me that uh, I was not a Bruckheimer fan initially. My my pop culture intake basically went sports, 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 WWE, and then around the time I was like tw- eleven or twelve, I found Entertainment Weekly. And Entertainment Weekly radicalized me. Now, Darren, I assume you've been reading it your whole life, right? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, very similar, except before I, I wasn't watching sports. So I actually had nothing before Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> nothing, so, nothing, nothing, so nothing. It, it wasn't so Weekly. much, it was not so much radicalized. It was like provi- like creation of entire personality starting in like the mid to late 90s. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you understand, and I don't think people who, didn't grow up in, you know, this era understands this about Time Warner magazine. But you understand that the Michael Bays and the Jerry Bruckheimers did not get respect from that magazine. So no. I I went – it occurred to me as I was doing the, Jerry, the, the, the Bruckheimer watch, I went from being, you know, sports, 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 wrestling to uh, directly to auteurs. Direct, like, like jumping over all the popular shit. And directly to, you know, like, like, would, like, would sooner go to New York City. I remember, and I, you know, it was 1996 because it was Sling Blade. I went to New York City an hour, dragged my dad to go see Sling Blade because Entertainment Weekly told me to. Um, it's a good movie. Which, it's an amazing movie, but which is to say, like, I was more in the Three Kings wheelhouse in sure, 99 sure. than I was, like, coming back. And, like, when I let my brain slow down, and I stopped caring so much about the world. I could really appreciate your bays and your, you know, your, your, all the Bruckheimer team. So long way to say, long, long way to say, I haven't seen this movie since 2001. And, uh, I liked it a lot back then. Um, I have a lot to say this time around, but before I keep going, uh, Darren, what's your, what's your uh, experience with this movie? Where were you in 99? Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Well, you know, one of the reasons why I'm glad to be on this podcast is I'm very much of the generation where 1999 and specifically 1999 movies was the most formative cultural period for me. Um, I mean, I can remember seeing Three Kings in theaters because I believe it came out either, I think it was the Friday before Fight Club. And I saw both those movies opening night. Um, yeah, they were both not, October. Yeah. yeah, I was trying to recall how I got in because I believe by that point in the year, the local theaters have been cracking down a little bit on 14-year-olds seeing R-rated movies. Um, I actually think maybe with Three Kings, it might have been an example where because it got a good review from Entertainment Weekly, I was able to convince like my parents to buy me a ticket on, you know, this is this is good for me, cultural grounds. Sa- same way I convinced my mom to take me and my friends to go see Go, which is a whole other story. Um <laughs> But, but I, I just really remember the first viewing of Three Kings on the big screen as like really kind of mind expanding. I hadn't seen other David O. Russell movies. Um, you know, this movie, the way that it was made, the kind of material yeah. that it's covering was very different from the action movies I'd seen at that time. Very different even from, uh, you know, the kind of specter of Vietnam, both historically and Vietnam movies really hovers over this movie. And this was even a lot different than, you know, that genre that, that I'd kind of experienced to that point. Um, and I, I kind of walked out of the theater thinking, wow, like, this is what all movies are going to be like now. This is the new Hollywood. (laughs) And that, you know, didn't necessarily happen. I I think a lot of people who remember movies in 1999 had similar experiences like that with other movies. Um, So that for me was, you know, Three Kings was so central to my experience of a great movie year. Um, It feels to me like a movie that has actually lost quite a bit of cultural steam. Like it it doesn't surprise me that you guys are doing this movie pretty, pretty later on after a lot of other films. I think for a lot of people, this is not one that stands out as much as it did at at the time. I I don't know if you guys feel that way, but for me at the time, this was, this was right up there with the other great films of of the year. I um, I, totally, I, 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 it's interesting. This film being later in the run was somewhat intentional in the sense that um, it's one of my favorite films of 99. I have not seen it in quite some time, but it has held up for me. Um, but I would also say, too, that uh, it does feel like it's it's a pro, it, its appreciation has evolved and changed over the years. I think a lot of that has to do with quite frankly, David O. Russell's, uh, the way he is perceived for good and for bad over the past 20 years or so has sure. certainly added to it. I, I would also argue, too, that as I was watching this film, what kind of hit me as well is there are a lot of movies about Iraq and Afghanistan and the, and the war in the Middle East, and I don't necessarily know that a lot of them have really punctured outside of a bubble of sorts it doesn't feel like like i know that there was a lot you know people really some people really like jarhead and jarhead had that kind of steam in before its release it's kind of evaporated a little bit it might hold up i haven't watched it since it came out but it does not jarhead doesn't exist but this movie does yeah exactly exactly. yeah i mean jared to to take take your your point about us doing this later in the run not to be a total jerk it's the opposite reason. Um, we, we, we looked at this movie as one of the, the temples of 99. Um, and when we talked about the year in the beginning was when we always highlighted as this came out in 99. So what we've tried to do is, you know, spread them out over the course of what would inevitably, a five, inevitably be a five-year podcast. Um, I, I think that this movie has been somewhat bulletproof when it comes to the David O. Russell thing. 
where David O. Russell has been looked at, you know, more and more as a tyrant and as someone who's not fit to be a, you know, a leader of people, um, someone who might be a little pretentious, someone who might not have the sensitivity to deal with certain topics. Um, but this movie seems to have existed outside of that as just a great film uh, that he made before he got crazy with power or blinded by Hollywood or, or blinded by celebrity or whatever it was. I'm here to tell you I disagree. I think this movie's not that great. <laughs> and I think this movie uh I think this movie raises a lot of red flags when it comes to David O. Russell and the kind of filmmaker he is and what he values and uh and and how he ultimately views all the things we're, we're scared of, imperialism, colonialism, oppression, white supremacy, um, centering stories on Americans, like the last one in particular is not anywhere near fatal flaw. I'm not – that doesn't bother me in the, in the slightest. But what, it, but, but what it does do – and I, this is why I think I'm really kind of – you know, I like this movie. I think this movie has a lot going for it. But what turned me off – is uh, is the way in the end of the day it was a redemption arc mm-hmm. for four American soldiers um, who are emblematic of our imperialist crusades uh, and never really stopped until they were forced to. So that I mean, I, I, yeah, I, go ahead. I I I do hear that, and and you know, I do want to be clear that you know. Watching it yesterday was the most kind of clear-eyed I've been about the movie probably, you know, ever, right? We, we evolve as people as we watch movies and or if we rewatch them, we're different people when we watch them later in life. Um, I'm not who I was in 99 and I'm not who I was in, I don't know, 2010 when I watched it last or whenever it was. Um, I, I think that this movie stands out in the David O. Russell oeuvre because it's still sort of his only studio film, if we're being completely honest. I mean, I think that, I mean, Joy is sort of a Fox movie, I guess. But, I mean, do we want to talk well, about I, Joy? I think but, The Fighter is a studio film. But. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, that, that's fair. I, I, I guess this film feels... Um, uh, it feels the most kind of effective for me as an actual storytelling like a film that tells a story cleanly um i i i'm not a big fan of the fighter i understand why people like the fighter um it it feels like the five screenwriters that it has working on it to me personally it just doesn't feel particularly cohesive um and i also as we'll find out not the biggest fan of mark Wahlberg. so these are all kind of things that are against the fighter for me personally i think Wahlberg is great in this film because he's weaponized um he that i think that perhaps david russell understands mark Wahlberg better than any filmmaker in terms of how to use his strengths and you know, and weaknesses and what have you, but but I want to kind of come back to what you were saying, Kenny, in terms of the the imperialistic, you know, perception or or, or idea. I, I don't think you're wrong. I don't think that this film is, but I also don't think that this film is necessarily condoning that behavior. I mean, I think that 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 for me, what I thought was interesting about this film was. As far as I can, and I haven't seen every film about Iraq, but this film feels like one of the first films to actually be like, we fucked up in Iraq. Like, our intentions for going into this war were wrong. 
and we shouldn't have have played this the way that we did. But I don't know if I mean I I don't know if you agree with that or not. In terms of the the redemption of their characters, I mean, yeah, they're they're for I mean, I don't I don't they're kind of some selfish guys, and they 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 pull themselves out of it. I think he wants it both ways. I think the I think the first half of the movie is is kind of mesmerizing for all the reasons you're you're saying, and mm-hmm. I think he wants it both ways. Okay, and maybe that's Warner Brothers, or maybe that's you know I I I don't know, but my my sense is at the end of the day, most of David. O. Russell movies, with the exception of his best movie, I Heart Huckabees, tax on an ending that uh, makes it a little more palatable to audiences than I think the rest of the movie uh, intends. Well, and by the ending, are you are um, I are you are you suggesting the saving of the prisoners, or are you saying the the fact the the epilogue in terms of not to jump no, around? No, more more the more the the. The saving of the prisoners. Okay. It's more that it's more that they have decided to 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 elevate human life over this mm-hmm. quest for personal enrichment, mm-hmm. which says something to me about Americans sure. that I don't think the rest of the film is saying. I I, I first of all, I, I want to say that like we're, we're not. Um, we're all pretty close to the same assessment of this film. Just to be clear, I think I, I think we are too. I think that no. I um, I might be giving it a little bit more slack than you guys to a certain degree, and I'll get into why I think that in a second. But but to to your point here, that I don't actually think that that they're all uniformly what you're saying, Kenny. Like I think that what's interesting about the film is how the four of them actually in a pretty nuanced way, change their perceptions about things as the film progresses. I think that I remember midway through the film, whatever, when before the firefight where Wahlberg is just like, dude, we got our fucking money. Like, let's get the fuck out of here. Like we're good to go. And, and Spike is on the fence because he obviously wants to agree with everything that Mark Wahlberg says. Clooney clearly does not want to allow what's about to transpire to transpire and same with with um, with Ice Cube's character. I, I think that there's a little bit more nuance here than you might be giving credit to. But I, but I but I want to just just yes, yeah, sorry. I don't want to give it credit for nuance because I don't think that the I, I it's a hard argument to make. The argument the the point you're making in the context of the film works perfectly. I understand that these are four characters who uh, are treated like typical protagonists starting from a place of being flawed and ending in a place where they've overcome their flaws to some extent. They've learned I think something, hopefully. They've learned something, yes. Uh, I I think because of what they represent, Yeah. what is that saying about America's imperial activities at large if these four guys all learn something and get better? Is it saying that there's a good version of imperialism if we're just better at it? I, I and, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's not. I'm just saying what I, it's, it's an open question. This actually reminds me a lot of the promising young woman debate that is happening right now. Um, because this movie could only exist when it existed. Because my sense with promising young woman is it can only exist right now. Right? That in three years the cultural conversation will be different, and three years ago the cultural conversation would have been different. Like. And I, I mean, I feel like maybe we don't give away too much about that movie right now because we're in the midst of Oscar season, whatever. 
But there is a uh, there there is a having it both ways at the end of that film that I think leaves a bad taste in some people's mouths. Um, and, and I think some of that is because people don't exactly know what to do with that issue in this moment. What is satisfying for that issue in this moment? So what I do what, – what concerns me about Three Kings as a viewer is at some point it felt like they lost track of what he was doing in terms of, you know, every American butterfly that flaps its wings in the Middle East sets off a tsunami throughout the rest of the region and, the, and, and shrunk it down, imploded it to only be about these three guys who survived, to only be about these three guys – and the lesson they learned and didn't even take, didn't even, didn't even, uh, bring forth in any kind of, you know, helpful way. Two of them became, two of them became, uh, or one of them became a stunt coordinator. Two of them. It was also, it was also navel gazing, right? Because then in the end of the day, the reason they didn't get punished was because, uh, because Nora Dunn showed the world that they were the good guys. And that, and, and the thing I've learned is, in the last 20 years, world doesn't give a shit. World doesn't give a shit what the media says. So, hey, all right, but long way of, long way of saying, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have shrunk this down to a story about the three guys at the end, the way they did when you have all these people who are dead and devastated because of what they did, what these three specific guys did in, uh, in search of gold. In search of Kuwaiti gold, not even Iraqi gold, in search of Kuwaiti gold that they were going to steal. Um, and then got to, you know, live out their lives in a happy way. That's just, I, I mean, and I, I hate I, like shitting on America, but that's just so American. I, I mean, I guess the question, so I, I, I want to kind of, I want to back up a little bit as well on the, on the David O. Russell thing, because I think it's worth talking about how sort of, uh, idiosyncratic and 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 esoteric and what he what he quite frankly got away with at this time in you know in studio filmmaking right I mean this is a guy who's had two films previous to this both of them independent comedies I think Flirting with Disaster is still a pretty funny movie even if yeah it's, I like it you know, too uh, Spanking the Monkey I haven't seen in a million years so I can't tell you if that holds it's up the best this guy- it's it's his best movie fuck a piece. I, I think that he's given, I don't want to say a blank check, but he's kind of given a blank check here. He's given almost $50 million by Warner Brothers, um, and he really runs with it. I think that this film, as I said, I think on a, on a storytelling perspective, taking away the, 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 the completely valid things that you guys are saying about, about the ending and, and about what it's saying about imperialism, on a pure storytelling it's the cleanest, straightest line, I think, of his films outside of The Fighter. Um, and I think that it has heart. It's got brains. It's got a great cast. It's got fantastic production value. It's got all those things. And it's a high-wire act of tone that I think, for the most part, it lands, which is really, really I tough. agree completely. I agree completely. So basically, at the beginning of the film, and I remember this when, it, when it, I saw it in the theater – uh, it's not on the DVDs. It's not on anything that you, you know, it's not on HBO Max now. But there was a disclaimer that said, explaining sort of the quote unquote strange look of the film. And I'll explain basically the vibrant color is due to the fact that they used ectochrome slide transparency film instead of standard film stock and that they bleach bypassed it essentially. So it made the blacks a lot deeper. 
and the silver halide is completely opaque. It's a truer black, and it costs more money to make those prints. So twofold, you had to explain it because people were going to think that the film looked fucking weird, and it costs you more money. So both of those things are sort of like, why are we doing it? Now, personally speaking, <laughs> you know, Newton Thomas Siegel, who shot the film, I think the film is gorgeous. I love yeah. the way the film looks. Um, so I, 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 I'm thrilled that they did it. Especially but I'm also for just a film like, shot in Arizona. Right. But I'm also just like, if you're Warner Brothers, you've got to be thinking, what the fuck have I got myself into? You know, that this guy wants to spend way more money on on just just the cinematography alone. Um, But I respect that he did it. It just costs more money. Yeah, I mean, uh, in my memory, the look of Three Kings was kind of much imitated in the years after just kind of the idea of connoting wartime action realism with that kind of style. Yeah. But rewatching it again, you know, even on H- HBO Max, um, in what I assume is a visually butchered version, because, you know, <laughs> anything with that kind of, as you say, deepest of all blacks visual <laughs> stuff doesn't really translate to streaming. Um, it, it just, it still feels pretty singular to me. And I think it's probably for the reasons you're describing, all the, all the technical stuff that you just said. Um, but what jumps out at me even more just to kind of go a little bit behind the scenes is the idea of them doing that kind of technological risk to a certain extent um, with what I gather was still kind of your classic David O. Russell, let's tear it up each morning and improvise everything. That's what it seems like. I mean, clearly, you know, that kind of model, I think it has its positives and its negatives. And, you know, there's famous behind the scenes stuff attached to the movie. Um, but which we should talk you know, about at some point as well. Yeah, we'll talk about it at some point. But even, you know, to pick, to pick kind of a later scene from the movie, um, when they're kind of trying to convince the guys to help them and they're talking about George Bush and it's like so wild and funny. And then they, they say that they'll pay the guys. Like that feels pretty unique to David O. Russell's style. That, that kind of feels like, okay, we've organized a whole studio production here and now I'm going to just tear up the pieces of the script and we're just going to go wild for a while. And I, I really do respect that. It does make the movie feel a lot different even from the films that maybe were influenced by it either in, in tone or in style. I, I think, I mean, again, I, the more I talk about this, the more I'm coming the, around to saying like it still feels pretty singular to me um, you know, sure. even compared to some of the other really influential movies that you guys have talked about on the the podcast that were influ- you know, were imitated one way or the other over the years. Singular's a a really good way to put it. I you totally know, agree. I think that it. I mean, I, I just the way the film opens. I mean, it literally opens with just the sound of a soldier walking, a, a, an oddly high angle shot <laughs> over over Wahlberg. While he calls over his shoulder saying, are we still shooting people? Are we still shooting people? And then this sort of this, you know, a bunch of like weird whip pans and crash zooms into some soldiers that are kind of like fucking around. Like the the, the energy right out of the gate is, as you said, singular. Like it's, it's unlike any war film I think I've seen, quite frankly. Um, and part of it has to do with all of those weird sort of like intangibilities in this particular war at this particular time in American history where it just sort of it just feels so odd like and 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 humorous but also like someone dies in that first scene like Mark Wahlberg shoots a guy and kills him 
and then everyone kind of takes a picture with him, and no one really thinks that they were going to see anybody get shot before and, Abu Ghraib. Yeah, it's it's all yeah. just it's it's biz- and then it crashes into basically a, a music video <laughs> for a, for another like for a good two minutes. Very which 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 ends with like all these army guys are like are drinking and they're celebrating and they're singing yeah. along and like that scene more or less ends with like Spike Jones's character like screaming and pointing a gun at Mark Wahlberg's character in like you know enthusiasm like I, I don't know I, I think that's the stuff where I think the movie is really tapping into something pretty bold by you know. It's not stamping that stuff with this is bad in a way that I, I think even some really sharp films in the 2000s felt the need to do that. Um, I do think that, yeah, I mean, that whole opening is just so exuberant and wild. And I, I kind of think that um, it sets the tone totally. And, and, you know, the fact that even it kind of that first scene you're describing, Phil, it ends on that freeze frame of Wahlberg looking yeah, disturbed like head, and sad. His, yeah, I mean, it's, that's, yeah. that's, that's, one of the, that's one of the best Mark Wahlberg moments he's ever had, really. I, I, I don't know. I think that um, to get back to what uh, you guys were saying earlier, like, yeah, talk about the use of the blunt instrument of Wahlberg is used very well in, in this movie. <laughs> it is. He's there's He does something. I, I feel like Mark Wahlberg has like, Two Gears, which is um, sort of alpha male, uh, you know, that or yeah. talking in a high pitch looking for, for earnestness is sort of the two things that he that he does. And in this movie, they they perfectly and by they, David O. Russell perfectly weaponizes that earnest quality in him, the desire in theory to be a better person Um or at least just sort of a, a, an understanding of things or, or this kind of sweetness that exists in him um, that works really well in this movie. Um, and also kind of, I don't know, it's just the, the, the Wahlberg persona is kind of deconstructed in this movie in a way that I really appreciate. Yeah. Before I, he even really had a persona, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, that, right. That's the prophetic stuff in the movie. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I did a lot of thinking about Wahlberg. During this movie, <laughs> uh, needless to say, uh, and you know, as yeah. listeners know, um, I have a history with the man. So uh, it should be said he was very nice. But that being said, uh, I'm trying to think about Wahlberg in this period and what he brought. And here's the thing that I want to kind of get out about the Wahlberg persona that really was, was born in Boogie Nights. Mm -hmm. He is a white male at the top, tippity top, top, top of the food chain. And what he plays that I think is so true to life that I don't think a lot of people understand is that when you're a white guy at the top, tippity, top, top, top of the food chain, when you have all of Maslow's hierarchy of needs figured out, right? You don't have to worry about fucking anything. There's really no reason to be a fucking dick, which he's not. In Boogie Nights, any other actor or any other character, any other archetype, I think would have fucking gay bashed Scotty, right? His protection of Scotty, inclusion of Scotty, niceness towards Scotty was 
so weird in the context of a movie and so true to life from what I've seen from people who are at the top to tippity top like him. Right. The way he treats Spike Jones in this movie, the way it's not like he's like his protector. It's not like he's he's just not kicking him around. He's letting him hang around. That is real to me, too. And I think the other guy who's picked this up is Channing Tatum, who also kind of, you know, lives in this, you know, rarefied airspace. But Hmm. but but almost any other character of this or almost any other. um, And Paul Walker did this, too, really well, by the way. But almost any other actor who lives up here imbues some dickishness that I don't really think is real. I think those guys who, who operate at the top, who are dicks, generally are sidekicks, generally are second in line, because if you're a dick, you have so much fucking pent-up insecurity anyway. That's not a real thing. So I, I think, for me at least, what Mark Wahlberg brings to this movie – uh, brings to Boogie Nights, brings to I Heart Huckabees, brings to some other things he's done throughout his career. I think the fighter would, would count on, would count as well. Um, is a true to life, a true to life, um, what's the word? Portrayal of the alpha of the alphas. I, 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 I'm, and I'm not even giving him too much credit for, it, but I'm blown away by people who see that because there's so much, there, 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 there's such a, natural inclination among creative people who were not those people growing up to portray people at the top as jock bullies. But I don't think that's what they really are in general. I think there are people around them who are jock bullies. I think that just, just to be a a little bit clearer about my, my feelings about Wahlberg, I, I, he is in, (laughs) he is in some wonderful movies. He's in some of my favorite movies. I love boogie nights. I, I think that, um, he'll be hard pressed to ever beat that in terms of just really showing um, the, 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 the breadth of his talent and, and, and Orson real- Welles will never beat citizen Kane. Right, you right. know, what are you going to do when, uh, when you're not getting out of the park? You're sure. here. It's, it is what it is. But, but I, but I, I, I want to kind of part of, part of, I think for me anyway, Kenny, I don't know him as a person and, and I'm, I'm happy to hear that he's a nice guy. I, I, I don't doubt it. Um, and I think that the performances that, that work for me the most from Mark Wahlberg seem to tap into that. I think the performances that don't work for me from him are essentially the other 75% of his filmography. Totally uh, agree with you. Are things that just are of very little interest to me. Um, there's also this kind of puffed chess alpha male stuff that he sometimes does in the press. You know, the, the, you know, if I was on the plane I on September the 11th, plane. I would have been able to stop it from happening. Stuff like that that just makes me go like, mm, all right. But I also, it's worth noting here, because we're talking about Wahlberg, Clooney and Wahlberg do another film together as well. They do The Perfect Storm, which comes out the next year. And he was supposed to be Brad Pitt's character in the Oceans films, but there was like a scheduling issue that that, that couldn't happen. I'm thankful for that because I love Brad Pitt in the Oceans movies. Me too. Um, and it's not to say that Clooney and Wahlberg wouldn't have had a similar kind of energy. They might very well have. But Brad is so effortlessly cool in those movies. And Wahlberg, for what it's worth, has to kind of work for that a little bit in a different way. And I'm not sure that that energy would have been as much fun to watch. 
Clooney that's and Wahlberg to me is like that's one of the great Hollywood what ifs because as you said they did Three Kings they did Perfect Storm yeah. I can remember them giving interviews where they say, you know who knows but they yeah. seem like very invested in like yeah, we are two there. guys who like each other who <laughs> want to keep making movies together yeah. and then yeah. I, I don't quite know what happened but yeah I mean it, it seems like th- that was that great period where like everyone was almost in Ocean's Eleven and like you know, there's like a whole <laughs> there's like a whole other cast of people who were nearly playing all those characters yeah. and then yeah and then yeah. nothing in the Clooney Wahlberg collaboration since then they 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 left that all behind at, at the dawn of yeah. the 21st century <laughs> I do wonder if a little bit of it has to do with um you know Clo- Clooney was a bigger star than Wahlberg at the time of Three Kings and, and at the time of Perfect Storm but then at a certain point Wahlberg has an ascension of his own right and i i just they, they weren't in the same sort of like i i wonder if this was like clooney taking Wahlberg under his wing a little bit i think like, it was gonna, you know what i mean so, he's got yeah. 10 years on him you know i yeah. think it was i think there was some of that i think also like yeah they're they're two cool guys i like i <laughs> and two yeah. cool guys who are kind of similar right yeah. like yeah. Brad Pitt is as cool as they come, but Brad Pitt sits at home and gets high all day long. That's not what Clooney and Wahlberg are. <laughs> so they, they're, 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 they're two cool guys who I think get off on movies like Three Kings, get off on, you know, movies yeah. like The Perfect Storm. Yeah. And I think at totally. some point, I think at some point Clooney went deep into that Syriana world with Grant Heslov and decided I'm going to do different shit. Yeah. Where, you know, I, I think Again, knowing a little bit of Wahlberg and where his mentality is. Like, um, number one, I think, is making good films people are going to love. And whether that's making Transformers or straight up like The Happening was an idea that like I'm going to make a movie with M. Night Shyamalan because he makes movies people love and I can do that, right? Uh, I also think that he has a... um, as you said, this this alpha male masculinity thing that's hard to shake, yep. which puts him in a position where he's very often playing uh, people in military and law enforcement or whatever. Uh, sometimes you wind up in a movie with Scorsese where things go right for him. And sometimes you wind up making the fourth and fifth Transformer movie, movies where people say, what's going on with you? Uh, and then fifth one's the best, you- man. Fifth one's the best. <laughs> I'm here for it. Excalibur. <laughs> And then sometimes people really get him, like what he does really well. Like, yep. you know, we're talking about the David Russell stuff early on. They get it. Paul Thomas Anderson gets it. But like later in his career, Adam McKay got it. Yep. 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 Um, Daddy's Home got it. Like there is the, there are the, this thing that he does mm-hmm. that can be used in a, a little bit of a different way, uh, where he's a little more intimidating, a little less like, uh, I'm going to put you under my wing and and guide you to safety because I'm just a you know a guy who gets shit done. That I think is valuable too. Like I even saw that movie because it's a kid friendly movie with him and um, Rose Byrne, Insta Family. Yes, Insta Family. Yeah. It's very it's very charming. He can play cool yeah. dad these well, days. Can I, I just this this is worth I think worth doing just for a quick second in terms of just seeing where he is in his you know career at this point he does boogie nights in 97 he does the big hit in 98 and then in 99 he's got he's got yeah the big hit everyone's a movie a movie i like (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i'd I'd love to rewatch it it's a gonzo ass movie yeah 
Yeah, so the Corruptor and, and and Three Kings are both in ninety nine. We haven't done the Corruptor yet, but we'll be doing it soon. So we'll we'll have another crack at Wahlberg. But but he does the Yards and Perfect Storm in two thousand. Then he does Planet of the Apes and Rockstar in two thousand and one, and the Truth About Charlie in two thousand and two. So right there, it's getting away from him, and people are sort of like, "What's happening?" And I think that Italian Job gets him back in people's good graces. It does. And and that movie sort of re-solidifies him. Um, he then does I Heart Huckabees, which as you know, we should talk about that film, obviously. Um, and then it's and then it's like Four Brothers, Invincible, Departed, Shooter. Like it's all it's it's him. He gets his lane, he gets what's sort of working for him. Him making I, money. And I totally agree with you, Kenny, that the other guys shows a different gear. It shows mm-hmm. a sort of meta gear of of being able to understand well, his persona. I heard, I heard Huckabees is really yes, the first yes, one that does yes, that. Like, but no but one yes. really sees that movie, but yes. Well, everyone's wrong and stupid. They're wrong, but yeah. But, uh, but I but I think that that, incom- that moment of Wahlberg, and again, as I say all of this, I, I don't hate the guy. I really don't. And I think his ability to understand himself and understand his persona kind of makes him unlike a lot of movie stars because a lot of movie stars don't really want to do that deep dive and don't really want to you know so anyway that deconstruct themselves do you know how he got this film are you aware with the letter he sent to david it's o russell crazy so david o, david o russell wanted nick cage had cast nick cage yeah. um and clooney had read it first and like begged for it and he's like no 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 I'm like, I'm not going with the guy from ER. So he wanted Nick Cage. He cast Nick Cage. Something happened with Nick Cage. I think he went and do a... Uh, he did Bring Out the Dead. Bring Out the Dead, exactly. So, can't say no to Scorsese. So all of a sudden, it's open. And he writes David O. Russell a long letter and signed it, George Clooney, comma, TV star. <laughs> so... Yeah. There's that also is, a that is your guy. There's also a moment where apparently when they first meet, David O. Russell brings a video camera... And like videotapes their first conversation or something along those lines. And apparently Clooney said to him, I better get the part because I don't want to be in a video for the making of Three Kings and not actually get the part. You know, the Spike Jones thing is also another thing on the list of David O. Russell pushing the boundaries of what he was capable of getting away with at the time. Warner Brothers had no interest in casting Spike Jones, a guy who had who was a director. They, they, and Clooney didn't want to act uh either act yeah. for him. Yeah. Yeah. But he so apparently David O. Russell would get on the phone with Spike Jones and they would work on his accent while he's shooting being John Malkovich. So like it's like this is all happening like concurrently essentially. They should have put that into adaptation. Wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but all of this is to say yeah. with Nicholas Cage. <laughs> oh it's, fucking a. But Spike Jones is fucking great in this movie, guys. Like I watched this performance. It's amazing yesterday and i was just like and he's also i mean he's great in wolf of wall street in the scenes he has he's great in, in moneyball um there is a very he's very good on camera he feels very real he doesn't it doesn't feel um it all just feels very genuine and and he is the comedic relief in this film but it's done in a way that you're not laughing at him in a weird way like it's a loving portrayal to some degree or another um, he's got some great fucking jokes and, and his delivery spot on. Um, and he's also the tragic character too. I mean, obviously com- comedic relief tends to be the character that dies so that we feel something, but 
but I gotta say, he's just. I I wish he acted more. Is really ultimately he'll, what I'm getting. He'll at. be very high on my uh on my short list for best supporting, best supporting actor, actor. <laughs> 1999. Yes. But you know, I think the I think the the I assume it was him because I don't know how you write it or even think of it. Yeah. But the singing directly from Three Kings into Mercedes Benz. <laughs> That killed me. I was dead. That was that was too much. That's a that's a level of brilliance I don't think exists. <laughs> the first fifteen minutes of the movie, he has been so punchable, and then you get to that scene and he's singing that song, and it's just so beautiful. And I believe that scene actually was basically like what they set the trailer to because it established why the movie was called Three Kings. So like, like that is one of my seminal memories of 1999 television is the Three Kings trailer playing and Spike Jones of all people being the one to kind of set the framework for the movie. And for, from there, that's the kind of magic hour of the movie from there onwards where just I everything totally about it is, is going so right. I mean, even, even setting aside we even really talked about the supporting cast of this movie nora is dunn amazing. is fantastic is nora, nora, fantastic. nora dunn is amazing um this is a really early cliff curtis movie yeah, and he's, he's obviously done too. so yep. much stuff um um alia shakat as the little girl yeah, as the little girl <laughs> yeah. what a, what I know. And, Ju- and judy greer a little uh arrested yeah, developer yeah. judy <laughs> greer yeah exactly i mean that's that you know to talk about just like you know compilation of talent all together in one place maybe the best jamie kennedy movie next to scream and scream 2 also my, correct one of my undercover favorite parts of the movie is when jamie kennedy is clearly trying to kill kiss nora dunn yes. and she just pushes his head away um which i understand because nora dunn looks so hot in this movie it's she crazy she really does yeah she's got such a hot thing going on maybe i'm just such a misogynist but like i'm blown away can I, um, Kenny, you mentioned earlier uh, a couple minutes ago about the sort of feeling like lightning in a bottle moments, like what's written and what's not written, which right. is definitely a David O. Russell trademark. <laughs> um, I want to just talk for a quick second here about the writing of this film because it's worth unpacking for a second. Basically, uh, John Ridley writes this script um, as an experiment to see how fast he could write and sell a script. Don't I'm rolling my eyes. If you could see, I'm rolling my eyes. Uh, it took. <laughs> why? Why are you rolling your eyes? I don't necessarily have a problem with the experiment of it, of the idea of how quickly you can write a script. It's the how quickly I can sell a script that has an arrogance that makes me kind of want to wretch. I think the experiment, <laughs> as far as I could tell, maybe yeah. I'm wrong, was how fast I could write it. He I happened to it sell was. it. He okay. happened to sell it 18 days after he finished. He did. But um but, but but all that being said, David O. Russell claims to have not read the script, but was pitched the log of it. And the one sentence description of the script, which was titled at the time Spoils of War, was a high set in the Gulf War that appealed to him, and he went off and wrote, quote unquote, wrote a script or did write a script. I don't want to say he didn't, he did. Um but he said he never read Ridley scripts to not pollute his own idea. Uh, John gets credit where it's due. The germ of the idea is what I took from him. There's then an arbitration. The, the poster has no writing credit to John Ridley on it. Uh, but there's an arbitration and, and it then gets on the prints. So it's actually in the film itself as a story credit. Um, it's all kind of weird. I'm not really sure how to feel about it because... 
David O. Russell's films are such a weird organism to begin with. There's a lot of improvisation. There's a lot of kind of on-the-fly vibe to it. Um, so it's all very kind of messy and blurry and weird. But I, I'm happy to see that John Ridley has the credit that I think he probably rightly deserves. Um, but again, add it to the list of, and we will then get into at some point the Clooney, the Clooney David O. Russell I, conflicts. So it's you know it's a lot. I have feelings about this. Believe please, it or please, not. I'll yeah. tell you all my feelings. I want one, all of them. Don't hold back. One, <laughs> uh, my lifelong experiment <laughs> is to write shit as fast as possible. <laughs> my 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 plan sell, sell, sell. my plan for this year which i am my plan for this year was to write six screenplays i am currently six behind my plan but i i have this like this have like your dream. four children got in the way of the six screenplay they they have and, but my 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 real dream there's this writer i mean i i i hate him but i have so much fucking respect for the way he does this you guys know madsen tomlin Guy's writing the Batman. He wrote um, blah blah blah, bunch of shit. He writes ten screenplays a year. And when we did our Cliff episode, I'm not Cliff, our Clint episode, I talked about the bad pancakes. Yeah. He writes ten scripts a year, gives them all to his people. His people say these are good, these are bad, the way you or I would do with log lines. <laughs> uh, and they sell the ones that are good and they throw out the ones that are bad and he's not precious about it. So like, I love that. Cause that's the way I would work too. If I, if I, I would just go and write, 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 write. So him writing this thing in seven days, I love Kevin Williamson famously wrote scream in three days. It doesn't matter how fast you do it. Just this is true. Good. This is true. Uh, him selling in 18 days. I'm amazed. I mean, this guy yeah, was a fucking that's, that's- stand up comic, right? This guy was stand up comic with no credits. I'm amazed that he's able to get it in front of anybody 18 days later, <laughs> let alone someone who could purchase it. But you know, he became John Ridley as an Oscar. I guess he's pretty good at this. Um, yeah, he the, seems to be competent. He seems to be very good at it. <laughs> the third part is it seems like this script, Spoils of War, went into the Water Brothers cat- catalog of unproduced scripts. Yeah. Every studio has a whole bunch of shit they buy and they pretty much are never going to make. Now, I'm not convinced they were never going to make this. I have no idea what's in the original script, but that is where a lot of them live. To have a director who more or less has like his little blank check come and say, I want to do the script is probably a bit of a dream at that point, you know? And Andy came off flirting with disaster, which was like a, a wildly well-reviewed movie. So John Ridley probably felt pretty fucking good about himself. He then experienced what screenwriters have been experiencing um, since like the 70s, since like the auteur period, which is basically some director comes and rewrites your entire script. Most just aren't this brazen about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have a big problem with this. I feel very badly for John Ridley that he wrote a script, but I don't have a big problem with you know the author of a movie, which yeah, is yeah. who the director is, coming and making it his own. And if that means a patron rewrite, if that means rewriting three characters, or if that means never reading the script, taking the concept and writing from scratch, that is what it is. That's part of the business. Um, I believe. I don't. I don't take issue with it either. I know. I, I'm not I, saying you do. I'm not saying you do. I'm just telling you my feelings. Yeah. And uh, I also, I also believe that that's what happened. I, I, I believe that he probably never read it, and I believe that he saw that logline and ran with it. I mean, I believe that too. I, I wasn't yeah. done things like that where, like. I will. I hear that there's a script or a 
television pilot that's somewhat similar to something I'm working on or thinking about, and I will not read it. Mm-hmm. So I have complete deniability if someone says this is like that. I'm, oh, I never read it. Never heard of it. <laughs> Search me. I, so I, that's yeah. my feelings on the whole writing process. I want to. I want to just say something very quickly. First of all. Really should give context. An hour into this episode, did not do that. So I'm going to do that right now. That's that's my bad. Uh, brief synopsis. Uh, just after the end of the Gulf War, four American soldiers decide to steal a cache of Saddam Hussein's Welcome to the podcast, goals. Darren. Uh, led by cynical Sergeant Major Archie Gates, played by George Clooney. Three of the men are rescued by rebels, but Sergeant Troy Barlow, played by Mark Wahlberg, is captured and tortured by Iraqi intelligence. The Iraq rebels beg for the American trio to help fight against the impending arrival of Hussein's elite guard the men agree to fight in return to help uh for help rescuing troy as we mentioned written the story is by john ridley the screenplay by david o. russell directed by david o. russell it opened on october 1st 1999 in second place against double jeopardy american beauty blue streak and drive me crazy it would go on to make 107 million dollars on a 48 million dollar budget it's got 94 percent on rotten tomatoes from critics 77 percent from audiences Roger Ebert's four-star review said Three Kings is some kind of weird masterpiece, a screw-loose war picture that sends action and humor crashing head-on into each other and spinning off into political anger. It has the freedom and recklessness of Oliver Stone or Robert Altman in their mad dog days and a visual style that hungers for impact. A lot of movies show bodies being hit by bullets. This one sends the camera inside to show a bullet cavity filling up with bile. David O. Russell, who wrote and directed, announces his arrival as a major player, like the best films of Scorsese, Stone, Altman, and Tarantino. This one sings with his acceleration of pure filmmaking and embodies ideas in its action and characters. Most movies doze in a haze of calculation and formula. Three Kings is awake and hyper. And then I want to just quickly read a uh, a clip from The Ringer. They did a whole series on uh, the 1999 films uh, two years ago now, I guess. Uh, they said... Three Kings is David O. Russell's most brazen and thrilling work. This has become hackneyed phrasing in contemporary movie writing, but they really don't make them like this anymore. Telling stories this weird, violent, and caustic right up until they turn simultaneously sentimental and critical of U.S. foreign policy. The conclusion is a magic trick. It laid the groundwork for the next century's socio-political struggles. The events of September 11th would arrive less than two years later and argue a begotten, uh, sorry, a misbegotten return to Iraq. The privatized military operations executed by companies like Dick Cheney's led Halliburton would follow uh, a reflect follow and reflect a generation of soldiers eager to get properly paid for their experience in conflict. The refugee crisis resonates clearly today from Europe through Latin America and the Middle East. This movie saw the future, even if it doesn't always seem present. It's too angry, too confusing, too violent. It's a lot like war. Um, so that's, that's that. Um, <clears throat> I do want to say very quickly, uh, as a lead into what I imagine will be a brief conversation about this Clooney O'Russell bullshit. Um, a Russell, as he mentioned, never wanted Clooney in the role. He Russell. wanted <laughs> not O Russell. <laughs> what, what did I say? O Russell. O Russell. Did I not say that? David O Russell. Yeah, but he's not Irish. Anyway, that's his, uh, that's his middle initial. That's like S. Truman. So his first choices were Clint Eastwood, <laughs> Mel Gibson, Nicolas Cage, Jack Nicholson, and Dustin Hoffman. They all turned down the role. Uh, he also offered it apparently to, to Nick Nolte. And then Jeff Bridges apparently wanted to play the role, but the studio wouldn't let him after the Big Lebowski take the year prior, which is hilarious now. Um, and Matt Damon and Matthew McConaughey both turned down the role of Troy Barlow. Um, the, 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 the Clooney o, o, David O. Russell situation, I think, really can be distilled very easily into David O. Russell is clearly a maniac on 
set. Uh, he, he clearly is just, you know, abusive. He, he yells at people. He, he, he is searching for some sort of chemistry that a lot of filmmakers feel the only way they can get is through harassment. Um, and Clooney didn't fucking want to take it anymore. And there was a, a stunt with an extra that David o. Russell physically did himself. And some people say it was just him showing the guy how to do the stunt. Some people say it wasn't. Clooney didn't see it that way. They got into a tussle. Subsequently, they seem to be fine now. That That's the long and short of it. But it's worth just saying that this happened on set. And it's a weirdly, and I don't know if you guys feel this way, kind of the legacy of this fucking movie. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And again, I, I think it's too bad. I mean... I agree. Um, I, like... I think this movie should be more discussed than it is. I think it's a lot better than some of the 1999 films that tend to kind of get the nostalgia promotion. I Mm -hmm. I think there's something so genuinely urgent about this movie at its best. I do think that, yeah, the the tabloidy nature of that, it kind of got absorbed a little bit into the larger O. Russell story after the I Heart Huckabees footage (laughs) leaked. Um, And I, I think that's too bad. I mean, you know, I think there's... There's a lot to unpack with the kind of, you know, young hotshot Indio tour directors of the 90s and the questions of, you know, were they kind of, um, were they using their uh, now kind of bygone superpowers as directors in ways that were always good? Um, but I, I do think that, you know, with this movie, more so than, when, than with his kind of, you know, post-fighter period, um, whatever was going wrong with his interpersonal dynamics on set was producing some pretty bold and vibrant artistic visions. I don't want to say that justifies a very much discussed controversial situation with the stunt guy. I mean, that, that is something that I think even the, even the participants involved have kind of changed their stories about over the years. Um, But it is, you know, it is, this is a time when, you know, a guy who had just come off of a couple indie movies was going to the desert to make a movie about the Iraq war. And I, I think that, um, it's sad that the only legacy of it is him being an asshole because a lot of directors are assholes. <laughs> I, like, think it's, I think it should also be said too, um, in, in the reading that I've done, you know, Clooney really went to the mat for this guy. Like yeah. he really used every bit of clout he had at the time, which is, if we're being honest, was still in kind of a nascent stage, right? Like he was a movie star, but not fully there yet. And he's using whatever clout he has to give David O. Russell the ability and the rope to make the movie that he wants to make. And even under these circumstances, even with him feeling as though it was a somewhat abusive film set. So I, I, I don't say that to pat Clooney on the back too much, but I think it should be said that you know Clooney, who would obviously become a, a future filmmaker of his own, uh, understood the situation and wanted to make the best film that they could... <laughs> Well, Kenny just made quotation marks for that's filmmaker. Kind of the other, to me, that's the other what if is like, you know, think of Clooney at this time, just looking for like an yeah. independent filmmaker who could use his clout. Like yep. he, he winds up in a symbiotic relationship with Soderbergh for a few yeah. years after this. But for that's sure. kind of, I, I think that with what you're describing, Phil, his relationship as a star to this movie, to David O. Russell's vision, um, you know, yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot of his support that comes across in the movie that is, is finally made, uh, whatever, whatever their interpersonal dynamics were at the time. Yeah. I mean, and I think that that's, that's a real, I don't know. That's a, that's an interesting situation. And I wish that that was the conversation more yeah. than the, they got into, you know, a tussle on set. So, yeah. Anyway. 
I think Clooney's cultural imprint is a particularly interesting one. I agree. Because, first of all, I, I, I do want to say, I don't think I've ever seen a George Clooney movie where I didn't love his presence. I love what he brings to the screen. He is as movie star as movie stars get. I think that George Clooney was a movie star before he was a movie star, which is to say, ER, obviously a brilliant show, but ER was a brilliant show that starred a movie star, right? <laughs> Correct. Correct. Like this guy who most people didn't know at the time had the presence mm-hmm. of a a Hollywood icon. Yeah. So I think that there's something interesting about Clooney. You know, in, in 99, he had ER for what, f- four or five years? Something five like seasons, that? Five seasons, yeah. Five seasons. Five seasons. And he had the failure of Batman and he had done some other things uh, one fine day. Mm-hmm. Um, but he certainly didn't have the clout you would think yep. uh, he was able to wield. And I would say that's because of who he is. I don't think we. I don't think we can sleep on the fact that sometimes in interpersonal relationships, uh, the relative power goes beyond what you could actually do. I think Clooney's entire career, he has been able to outkick his abilities um, in terms of what he's been able to get done. Like I think the movies that he's been able to make as a director outstrip his abilities as a director almost always. Right. Uh, but he continually is able to work with these, you know, weighty subjects with this really strong IP, with this really enormous budgets. He just did it with The Midnight Sky, a movie no one cared about, yeah. and a movie that most people most people would not give to a movie star that has, you know, the men who stares at goats on the road. <laughs> so, or so, or Suburbicon, or these ridiculous movies that he's... Leatherheads. Don't forget Leatherheads, Kenny. Leatherheads is like his good movie. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, I had like, you know, now that like, now that like George Clooney's a quote-unquote bad filmmaker, I'm even looking back, I'm like, I don't even think Confessions of Dangerous Mind was that good. Like he, he only has one great movie, and that's Good Night, Good Night, Night which good is a, which is a legitimately great film. But but I yes. also think that it's kind of I think the reason it's a great film is because he's boxed in. Very yes, right. I agree. Like it's he he basically has to it's tell. Not the Midnight Sky. It's not the Midnight Sky. I you know it's so it's interesting. You know, obviously we've talked about how David O. Russell didn't want Clooney at the time. And and to some degree, it's understandable uh, just in terms of the TV stardom of it all. They sent, apparently they sent a rough cut of Out of Sight to him. Um, Oh, Out of Sight was 98. Sorry, yes, my bad. So like, so he does have Out of Sight. And that, I think, is the fulcrum point for a lot of people. People point to like Out of Sight, Three Kings, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? As the kind of the three films that change people's perspective. Sorry, perceptive uh, of perception of Clooney but um it is kind of funny that Clooney has to work so hard to get this role he's very good in this role but I would also say too hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. 
Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's... It's a kind of encumbered Clooney performance. It doesn't mm. feel free. He doesn't, and, and I, I mean, I don't want to project what was transpiring on set to the performance because I don't know that they necessarily speak to each other. But it's it's not like the most charismatic Clooney performance, right? Like, I don't feel like it's, and I don't say that as a dig. I just think it feels a little bit like he's trying out some stuff. I want to say one more thing about Clooney. Yeah, please. Any time, with the exception of Syriana, any time George Clooney plays a person who doesn't have every single door open for him because he's so fucking handsome and charming, I don't believe it. So that <laughs> that's why I think like he's the only Danny Ocean in the world, right? Right. right. And he's the only. What's the guy's name? Out of sight, I don't remember. But he's the only. Oh, person uh, Jack Foley. He's the only person who could pull Jack Foley off too. But when and, and Sirianni's playing against that, but it doesn't make any sense in a movie like The Fucking Descendants that like every door is slammed on his face. You are George Clooney. I love Any- that. I yeah, love that you found a way to shit on Alexander Payne. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's it's not the movie I find of his most objectionable. I know. I know. But I think it's which one's worst that movie. What's that? Which one's the which one's the most oh, objectionable? The most objectionable movie he made is the one with uh, Damon a couple years ago. No downsizing. Downsizing. Downsizing, no. downsizing yeah. is pretty interesting. It has some bad moments, but objectionable. Downsizing is pretty interesting. <laughs> Oh, Here's I, what I'll say: that I, or I, or uh, or I think there. Are, I think he has a few very bad movies. I think I think that's fair. That's fair. Is a very, it's a very bad movie. I think about Schmidt's a very bad movie, and I think <laughs> the sentence is his worst. I, and movie. I I think that some people but, I I don't yeah, disagree. when well, Kenny and I, I were oh, oh, sorry, when Kenny I and I did about downsizing. Yeah, downsizing was a tantalizing premise. I ran to the, to, to see that movie, um, but I thought it was objectionable. All right, oh, I'll just let me let me just throw yeah, out, please, let me please. just throw out let me just throw out. I mean, downsizing, which is very controversial for a lot of reasons that would not be worth getting into. Correct. I think that movie is going to age almost better than any movie the last ten years because it is a movie that is about one thing for like. 90 minutes like first two acts and then it suddenly is entirely about like global warming and climate change in a way that like totally dominates the movie i i think i think that is one thing i would just say about downsizing a movie i definitely Darren. came in really excited to talk about is i i, I think it's worth another look i think it's Darren, worth if look. i'm still podcasting in 10 years i promise you that won't be the case <laughs> if global warming has to take it us down i will not allow that you, I, you I and will. me you and me will have, will have shrunk down we'll be hanging with the norwegians over in I'd like the weird biodome yeah. <laughs> but if my wife didn't come with me ooh. um i I want to just um let's get into the plot we'll hop around we've hit a bunch of things already but i I just kind of want to hit some of the bigger plot points obviously the 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 plot of this film actually is is pretty simple these guys you know go to steal some gold that they find on a uh a a map that uh, uh iraqi has jammed up his ass and um which which again like 
a testament to this movie that they can pull off something as pretty broadly comedic as a map being pulled out of a out of you know a, a prisoner's ass um and somehow make the whole thing work but they find this map um and Clooney's character that's a great little character moment for the two of them though he gave, he gave him the glove because he's Wahlberg he only gave you one glove he only had one glove. He only had one glove. I know if he had two gloves, he would have given him the other glove. He yeah, for sure. He's like, I only got one glove. Chain of command. Uh, but uh, so Clooney's character, Archie Gates, is sort of this, he seems to, I don't know, he doesn't know what we're what they're doing anymore. He's lost sort of faith in the you know uh, industrial military complex, and is like, I don't really want to do this anymore. Seems as though he doesn't really get it. Um, he hears about this map. This reporter played by Nora Dunn, Adriana, also here about the map. Long story short, Clooney hears about the map, gets into the room with them, and him, Ice Cube, Troy, uh, and Spike, and Clooney decide that they're going to go try to get this gold. Um, I, 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 I like the scene with Clooney, and, and I never know how to say it. How do you say uh, McKelty? Michael T. Michael T. Williams. Michael T. Williams. My apologies. Um, I love the scene they have together. Um, Again, I'm a big fan of scenes that can get Expo across, but the actors are just fucking great and it just works. And it's just a great scene of two guys that just tell us the lay of the land. You get a nice strobe effect with this chopper taking off. Yeah. That's that's very Altman to me. That's yes. that kind of like like yeah, yes. we're getting we're getting across the entire larger theme of the movie. Mm-hmm. Clooney as a guy who's kind of over it all, like just shut up and do what I tell you to do, and, and we'll come off okay after this. Yeah. And then and yeah, that, that kind of strobe effect. I think I think yeah. that's that's the good thing is like the movie does not spend too long trying to no. build up his no. character and why he's resentful. You kind of get it pretty quickly. Yeah, just you know to bring it all kind of uh, full circle. Full circle. Very Yosarian. That's a very Yosarian vibe. Uh, a character Clooney would. Clooney didn't play Yosarian, right? In in, in his Catch Twenty Two, which I'm sure he butchered, but um, but Altman also butchered it. So you know, <laughs> yes, it's a it's a very similar vibe of like, what the fuck are we doing yeah. here? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a lot of that, like. It, the, the absurdity of war, the absurdity of all of this, like, why are we doing this? Which you feel, I mean, that. Oh, sorry, it was, it was Nichols, not, not, a, not. Yeah, it was Mike Nichols. Not all of them. Um, but, uh, but that permeates the whole film. And I think it's why you guys bump, and, and to some degree, I bump on the ending as well, because it feels, it just, it feels counterintuitive. It, it feels like it's, we'll get to the ending when we get there. But uh, basically, you got a great Jamie Kennedy bit with the night vision goggles. He's like, I never got to use them at night. He's like, they don't work during the day. He's like, they kind of work. <laughs> Again, that had to be an ad lib. That's so good. Like, that's a, that's a comedian being funny. So, yeah. Um, then they uh, they basically decide that they're going to go and do this. They they you got a great sort of moment where um, you've got the needle drop of. Oh, sorry, that comes later. You've got them driving. Um, they're. They're skeet shooting with Nerf footballs, yeah. Uh, because Clooney told them that they could shoot some rounds when they were far <laughs> enough out because they didn't see any action. Uh, Spike attaches basically that's basically a save the cat moment right there. <laughs> <laughs> Let these guys shoot in the desert. What a guy! <laughs> so uh, 
and fucking Spike attaches some C4 to a to a thing. Clooney basically is like, what the fuck are you doing? There are two scenes in this film that there's a lot setting of Setting up the climax, obviously. But there's two setting up the climax, but it's two scenes that stay with me. The scene where Clooney explains the sepsis that you can get from a gunshot wound where like the bullet doesn't kill you necessarily, but the infection kills you. And that shot of the camera going inside Troy and seeing the bile stayed with me. Like, and what that does, as I'm sure you guys know, is when you do get any gunfire in this movie, every bullet has a weight to it. And I think that that is masterful Mm -hmm. you know when they have their firefight later there are very few bullets that are actually shot so everyone feels like it could be a kill shot and i and that's it's incredible he does something awesome which is in general because we're so uh obsessed with you know weapons and violence you only hear when the car when the car just gets emptied boom 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 but he goes boom, boom, boom. They hear all the entrance wounds. Yep. Psh, yep. Psh, psh. Yep. And that really hammers home this idea of, you know, action and consequence. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's, it, it's one of those things that David Russell said in a lot of interviews, which is that a lot of the action set pieces, a lot of the explosions, a lot of that stuff was shot with one camera, one take. He didn't want a bunch of coverage. He didn't want to shoot it like a music video. He didn't want it to be sort of like, look at how fucking cool this is. Um, and and that grittiness seeps into every part of the film in a lot of ways. That, which comes back to sort of that tone I'm talking about of that, like that mixed with humor gives you a chemical equation that makes this film so its own. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's hard for every point of action in an action heavy movie to have a true moral dimension and even harder to do that when, you know, as we're getting into the first big gunfight scene comes after some funny moments, some over the top moments, mm-hmm. some, you know, milk truck exploding moments, yes, like yes, to, yes. to kind of go through all that and then really zero in on even, you know, people attacking the protagonists whose death kind of seems really tragic. Yeah, I think that the weight that you're describing right down to the, to the way that the effects kind of come across the violence, um, that's all totally astonishing. Yeah, yeah and, and mix it to that, you've got a cow that explodes and then, and, then a, <laughs> and then a fucking Beach Boys needle drop of them, you know, hauling ass into this, into this towards uh, this bunker. Round, round, get around, <laughs> I get around. Which, which, and and it's, it, what I love about that is that Wahlberg starts it. He's like singing it while he's taking cow guts off of himself and then it just leads right into it. I love that too. It's great. It felt very um, real to me. So then they go to this bunker. The the Iraqis lie to them and tell them that the gold isn't there. They go out of town. They take a second. Clooney realizes that they've been lied to. It's at this point that Wahlberg's like, why are we going back? We're going to get shot. And Clooney gives a great speech about necessity. And then that plays into later the scene with, with, uh, with Troy and Saeed in terms of talking about what is necessity, um, which I really love. Um, yeah, I mean, you've got the, you've got the, we talked about the firefight, uh, you know, you have, you essentially now the film really comes into play because there's the Iraqi prisoners that they release from the bunker. And now you have this, the, the, the moral quandary that these guys are in essentially for the rest of the film, which is they get firsthand account of what's happening to these people, which is that 
Bush said, rise up, we'll be there for you. We're not there for you. And these people are being massacred now by the various other people inside Iraq. Um, and you get the impression that Clooney knew this information, obviously, beforehand. But it wasn't until he actually saw the people's lives being affected by it that it really is hammered home. There's also there's a cultural component to it as well. I mean, seeing how the shrines you know, seep into, into Spike's character, into Conrad's character and how he sees the afterlife and, and, you know, just spirituality in some way or another. All of these things start to really kind of, I don't know, find their way inside the characters, which I really love. Um, I mean, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about the minefield gas attack sequence because I yeah. think that might be one of the most virtuosic kind of moments from a filmmaking perspective in the film. There are shots that that feel very like I, I hate to say indie, but like camera angles and shots that would just not be done in a studio movie. I think about like some of these like wacky like off kilter shots of the mines. That shot of the of the van that skip I, that honestly skims over a camera that makes me think they destroyed a camera to get it. Like, what did you guys think of that sequence? It's kind of awesome, too, because I think one of the hardest things to do with any action scene in a movie, whatever level of reality the action is kind of meant to be set in, it's really hard to, like, show people just kind of accidentally doing things, even though that's exactly how people would react to, (laughs) you know, gas and gunfight and gunfire. And so the fact that like the most, one of the most crucial actions that happens in that scene is Spike Jones's character not being able to find his mask and just ruining everything. I I think that's handled so well. Um, You know, you're kind of, prepared at that point for the idea of, okay, these are like military guys. They got to be able, you know, they must know what to do in this situation. And of course, I think part of the virtuosity you're describing is you realize like, no, like, I mean, or even if they do, it's easy for one tiny screw up to just kind of snowball. And that's how you wind up with just everybody scattered in the desert, you know, amidst the gas. I think that's really interesting. I also, I want to posit a theory here that I think might be bullshit, but I'm going to say it anyway. One of the things that hit me as I was watching this film is that most of the truly insane action shots involve Spike Jones. (laughs) And I'm wondering whether or not he cast the guy because he knew he would be crazy enough to let him actually put him into these situations. He's a a skateboarder, you know, he's a skateboarder. (laughs) He's like, whatever, man. I I think he's unbreakable. (laughs) <laughs> he's just one of those guys. He's just, um, and you know, those guys, and they're always that, they're always that size too. Yeah, I think that there's like, <laughs> I think there's a really important distinction that sometimes doesn't get made when talking about film between realistic action movies and unrealistic action movies, and they both have their place. And having watched dozens and dozens of unrealistic action <laughs> movies over the past, you know, three few months for the Bruckheimer draft. <laughs> Um, I think the biggest difference, mm. and I, I did some shit that you know I might be completely flying off the handle. Mm-hmm. Bruckheimer and you know the Simon West and the Lethal Weapons and even the Diehards—they exist specifically as escapist fare. And the question to me, what I was I was thinking of when I was watching this movie is, okay, what are we escaping from? Right, like what is it about modern life? that we need to escape from, particularly during a pandemic, right? Like, like it's not really like I'm, I'm not escaping so much from my, 
taxes or from my responsibilities as a parent because I go to a movie for two hours to watch good guys kill bad guys. What I'm really escaping from, and this is where I might lose like tons of people, what I'm really escaping from is the power dynamic in society of oppressor and oppressed. Okay. Where you where for two hours you don't have to think about the role you play in society as part of the oppressor team, right? As part of the team that benefits, I'm talking about it as a white person, particularly a white male, part of the person that benefits from police presence, part of person, part of the group that benefits from military presence, part of the person that benefits from uh, a underserved underclass, um, and all of these things that are morally uh, difficult to deal with, I think. And the Michael Bay's movies like that really allow you to divorce yourself from that and escape from that for a couple of hours. Whereas a movie like this that depicts realistic action forces you to confront that. And that's why I think a movie like this and a scene like what we're talking about, where it's all realistic, where like there are things that are kind of funny in the context of what happens, but none of it feels like Superman beating the shit out of like, you know, super villains or bad villains. It doesn't feel like right's going to triumph just because they're, you know, quote unquote, right. Cause the movie tells us they're right. I think that's incredibly important. I, I totally agree I think with that. These, I think these are incredibly important movies and this, it, that's part of why, uh, people don't want to talk about it that much. That's part of why it never really even took on that Fight Club thing where people willfully misrepresent it. <laughs> yeah. um, it just is a movie that, like, if you really start to think about what's going on, it's not awesome. It's not cool. It's not fun. It's not escapist. It's just hard to handle what we do in this world, I think. I yeah, think it's great. In that I agree way. with that. And even like, you know, you're making me realize that one of the most interesting aspects of the movie is, you know, here's a movie about the American military in a war that, as the movie kind of addresses, America felt like we we, we have the moral imperative here. We know who's yes. good. We know who's bad. If we cast actors to play Americans in this movie, you know, there, there's a sense of, you know, the moral binary is here in a way that it might not be otherwise. And it's interesting that the movie's kind of about these guys going to a place where, as the necessity speech makes clear, they're kind of invisible in a way, or like, like, or, or rather they have this kind of Teflon around them because the American military might as well not exist anymore. There's a treaty that's been signed. So the yeah. fact that like, you know, the movie is kind of about them getting back into the middle of it, putting themselves in danger when they don't have to put themselves in danger. I mean, even, you know, the idea that at the end of the movie, as, as I've said, I struggle with it a little bit, but that it's kind of just about literally being like, hey, like, you know, Michael T. Williamson and the American military, like, can, can you briefly establish that you are here to help these people and then mm -hmm. kind of, you know, go back to your bubble? I, I, I do think that's interesting and kind of speaks to what you're talking about, where it really forces you to grapple with, you know, this is not a situation where the, the military is here to do something and everyone agrees with that, that it, it's kind of a, it's kind of that liminal moment where it may as well not exist at all, at least given the larger geopolitical realities that are kind of around them. <laughs> and then you could start to get into, into the questions, which I think, you know, are valid questions of what America's role in the world is. Because as a, you know, as, as someone with the power, we have the money, we have the power, we have the, you know, military might, et cetera, et cetera. We have a role. 
I can't. I mean, I, I just I, I can't help but think of the ways in which American capitalism is really what we export. It's not American democracy that we export. We export it. We export it through uh, military might and fear. And I'm not necessarily even saying that that is bad. I'm saying this is a fact. Right. I'm just saying this is a fact but I think there's a, it's an open question as to whether it's good or bad when like you are getting rid of evil tyrants who kill their own people like Saddam Hussein. Well, it's in, hard. In fairness, th- everything is in this movie that you're saying, even, you know, on, on the capitalist front, the fact that like when they find where the gold is being kept, it's in this bunker full of like watches and like mm-hmm. cool audio equipment and on Blenders. television. And on television, I believe Rodney they're King. watching video of the Rodney King. So, like, mm-hmm. all this stuff is all kind of weaved in together. To me, that apex is with when uh, the Saeed uh, Tagmawi yeah. uh, character yep. is talking about Michael Jackson as this larger symbol. And yeah. that's kind of when the movie becomes the, like, exploding football movie. That, that I, I think that's it's, – it's like we're on this awesome just rise of what the movie is kind of grappling with. And then there is that, that kind of dwindling of, away of what it's trying to do. Well, it's – <laughs> I, I I agree with you. I think that it's you know at, at this point Troy is is taken hostage. They 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 at, and and the Iraqi soldiers are just like, but there's a ceasefire. We're not supposed to be taking soldiers anymore. Um. So so it does exist in this weird sort of uh, nether region of like what is right and wrong under this ceasefire agreement. But they 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 do take him hostage. There's a there's a great scene that I think really sums up the humor, the heart, the stakes of what this movie is trying to navigate. Troy calls his wife and she picks up the phone and she's super excited to hear from him. And she's like, I thought the war was over, honey. And he says, well, it is and it isn't, babe, which I think is perfect. (laughs) Like a a perfect summation of what's going on. I mean, still, but I, I think that it's, it, and this leads into the scene that you're talking about. It's it's several scenes, but I want to kind of break it down a little bit. You've got the Michael Jackson component where Saeed is saying, you've made this black man hate himself so much that he's changed his appearance. And Mark Wahlberg is saying that it's complicated and it's not really <laughs> like that. And I think, you know... Um, there's also should be said too that Warner Brothers made them take out a line where it was uh, alluded to his pedophilia. Um, I, and, they, and I assume that was Wahlberg's line. I assume I do like, too. I do. Too. I assume that was him coming back and being like, "You should know a little more about the guy you're, you know, standing <laughs> standing for right now." But yeah. yeah. Um, but it it and it also should be said that apparently Mark Wahlberg attached actual electrodes to his body, so he was electrocuted in this That's scene. That's my man. <laughs> That's your boy. Um, so <laughs> there's also the scene where he, you know, would corral the exploding footballs just to just have it feel it. <laughs> um, but but this leads to a scene where Syed tells Troy about the bombings that injured his wife and killed his son, and you have these cutaways to. Wow, what transpired to the son and also cutaways to Troy imagining what could happen to his own family. It's it's really powerful stuff. And it does a great job of showing these two guys. And then later you you see them talking about how they both joined the army to support their families and that this is all a business to some degree or another and that they took these jobs because they're jobs and they can help pay their bills and help them. So it's like th- they don't even have... I mean, I guess Troy has an allegiance to America. I don't mean to suggest that he doesn't, but like 
it's it's hard to glean from Saeed whether or not he really is all that. I mean, it's, he doesn't seem to really want to support Saddam. He just wants to be able to have a family and, and yeah. support them. It's, 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 it's incredible. His, his performance is yeah. like incredible. I mean, it's, it's almost kind of like he... There was a while where after this where he wasn't really in a lot of major things. Then he was in Lost, then Wonder Woman. Yes, I feel like yes. now he's in a lot more stuff. He had that crazy scene in John Wick 3, I think. <laughs> um, but it's, his, his performance really brings the movie to a whole yes. other level. I, I mean, um, I, I think, again, that's the stuff where I'm just kind of like, it's so awesome. And I feel like yep. there should be more of a climax there. And they're just it, it just doesn't quite hit and it, I, it doesn't I, stick the landing a hundred percent that's my struggle with like, the movie yeah. is like 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 the middle so great you know yep. it's the classic thing of when a movie is doing all this great stuff for a while and then it kind of loses the thread a little bit do you still credit it for what it was doing or is there some lack ultimately when it can't kind of follow through on well that? yeah like, i mean like, I, I, like lost yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i i think what's I, great about- I know that you're not allowed to criticize the lost ending now apparently but come on guys Who's, wait, I, who's um, not allowed to criticize? There's it's, like a, there. it's like this There's thing now. There. It's like this thing now that, like, I That's feel true. like people have really pushed. Like, you can't criticize the lost ending. It, it was. I don't even know what the argument is. Like, it was good or something. But I think, I think even Damon Lindelof ha- has sure. said aspects. Of, I mean, you know. The, there's issues with the last ending. We don't need to cycle down that particular. Rabbit yeah, hole. It, it, it reminds me of that a little bit because I'll tell you, not in any way other than I think they took like the the lamest, most boring, most kumbaya way out, kind of like I think this did. But not to not to foreshadow my ranking at the end. The more I think about Lost, the less I think about the ending and more I think about how much I loved for the first five, you know, six seasons and and 11 episodes or whatever, 15 episodes, which I did. I'm crazy about that show and I've ignored the ending for the most part. The more we talk about this film, the more I forget the, you know, kind of the the thing that was the, the, the final image that I was left with, which was you really copped out. And the more I think of... Well, you copped out because you took it so far because you did so much, so many good things in the beginning that I was expecting you to hit a home run. And I guess I can handle a double off the wall. So I, I think that I, I agree with I 100 percent agree with what you're saying. And, 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 and I, something did occur to me that, that we'll talk about when we get to the ending uh, in a minute. But I'll just say that one of the things about the Saeed performance and the character that's so brilliant, too, is um how dangerous he seems, and yet at the same time so caring. And and I mean, there's their their moment, their scene, or their arc together ends with with Troy trying to convince him that they came into this war for stability in the region and to try to find you know um, to to stop people from being killed and to save the Iraqi people. Uh, so he does not agree uh, and jams a, a compact disc case in his mouth and pours oil down his throat and says, this is your fucking stability, my main man. I love that he says my main man so much. It's it the goes, dude, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's but it's a really powerful, haunting image that stayed with me. Yeah, I mean, all, all the more so because, again, this is the prophetic side of the movie, you know, doing that to Mark Wahlberg, who would become, you know, a defining American action star, Correct. starring in very jingoistic Michael Bay movies. Wait, you think Pete it's, Berg is jingoistic? I, I just, I just think, I just think that that's, that, that's also I, I forgot about the other guy too. Poor Pete um, Berg. I just that's 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 um, there was a time he was nuanced. Correct. <laughs> yes. Correct. Yes. 
Um, yeah, we're very, very yeah. bad things is comparatively nuanced, but um, I, I I don't know. I just um, the loss comparison is now really sticking with me. You know, you guys are writers, so you would know this more than me. Writers of stories, as opposed to rants about movies, but like, <laughs> it, it seems like such a tricky thing to not, on some level, ultimately make a story circle back around to quote unquote the character's journey. And with Three Kings, I guess all I feel is the ending in my head would have needed to have been a complete shift. Like it would have, it would have been completely like we're following Cliff Curtis for another five minutes at the end or something like that. You know, like that's, that's the only way all these feds were talking about, I think would really gotten paid off. And so in that sense, I know we we keep jumping around a little bit. This makes me forgive the ending a little bit, but it also makes me feel like, you know, in the middle, it's about much more than these guys. And then there is that sort of, okay, we're now kind of resetting back to these three guys and, you know, their happy endings. Which it, is, it's, I, it's, I, it's, that's the letdown, but I'm not sure if there's an, any way except for being totally unconventional that you get around that. For sure. And, and, and I do think that the ending suffers a little bit from um, trying to get out as quick as possible as well. Um, so it, 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 it tries to do a lot of shit in a very short amount of time and doesn't allow a lot of things to land. It also sort of infuses artificial tension into it a little bit. The, the Troy valve thing, Troy gets shot and his, his lung gets punctured. So when they put the quote unquote cuffs on him, he can't get the the valve to open up so it's like there's just it, it's it's good but it's all kind of like jammed into an ending that i think we all agree needs a little bit of breathing room to 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 stick a lot of tricky landings um but but before we get there real quick conrad playing chicago's oh no baby please don't go as he drives into the bunker is that was is great. great it's there are great fucking needle drops in this movie yeah um yeah, go ahead, sir. Uh, I'm trying to think of the, the ending that, that might have yeah. worked for me. Yeah. And I'm in all these crazy places right now. <laughs> I'm like, I'm thinking like, would, would it have worked if someone had gone with them? Like having Costner and Dead. No, I don't think that would have worked. But <laughs> I think that would have played poorly. Yeah. I think, I, I, I think that the, uh, the, the most interesting thing that I would have played through to the end, the end, end, end is when I think it was Michael T. Williams who said this is a media war early on. Yeah, it's in the scene and with that, yeah. And that's why Noah Dunn is even there, allowed on the yep. scene. And it was a media war, totally. right? It was a media yep. war playing on America and Europe about the Middle East pretty much. Mm-hmm. I think that I would have gone in the opposite direction in the end, which is yeah. that the people who were letting them go were bureaucrats from America who brought their own crew to show how uh, to show how empathetic and compassionate America was that they were breaking protocol for these you know downtrodden Iraqis to send them to a a place. I mean, I don't really remember exactly what Iran was at that time, but that. After all of our guys' hard work and all of their change, they don't get to be heroes. Nor Dunn doesn't get to be a hero. Even Michael T. Williams doesn't get to be a hero. It's George Bush who sent in. I don't know if it was Donald. Donald. His. I think it was Donald Rumsfeld. It might have been Rumsfeld. Yeah, who sent in Rumsfeld with his own camera crew to be like, "This is how great we are. Look at what we've done." That's interesting. And that feels like that does feel like that was the war I remember. 
where we were talked about, where, where we were sold this idea of we're liberating a people who were unjustly um, invaded by an evil tyrant. That's our mission. It has nothing to do with oil, though it did. It has nothing to do with gold, though it kind of did. It had nothing to do with geopolitical, you know, three-dimensional chess, a giant game of risk, though it did. Uh, <laughs> it really was just about liberating these people. And that's what I think I would have done. I would have kept the PR angle up um, in a major way and, and not in a way that our people benefited. I, I like what you're saying because that, I mean, my, my my only fix was like, it should end sadly and they don't, they don't make it over the border. But, but I'm realizing what you're describing is brilliant because within the constructs Thanks. of a nominally happy ending like yeah. it's that kind of treasure of the Siri madre thing yeah. where like the protagonists do not ultimately feel that they are victorious you know the, the good thing happens in the worst possible way i, yeah. I think that's even that kind of energy i just think it's a little better than as phil was describing when you're just rapidly getting through media fixed this and now they're yep. doing okay at Hollywood. <laughs> well, I, I, I really think that there's a couple things that as we've been talking about this, I've been thinking about the ending. For, first of all, I think it needed some breathing room. Kenny, I love your idea and I think it's absolutely the right ending because it allows right. you, it does give you the ability to, to say the things you want to say and also not, you know, have a downer of an ending. I honestly think the fucking epilogue is really the problem for me yeah. now. Like, because... If 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 you have them turn away as they did, the three of them turn away, you've got a freeze frame and you give me a fucking, you know, a little bit of an epilogue in terms of text saying that, you know, because of the media, they didn't have any charges and they didn't go to jail. That's enough of a win Kuwaitis, for me. And the thing about the Kuwait is getting most yeah. of the, uh, the gold. gold. I think yeah. I get yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm fine with all of that in text. What I don't need is this this odd little button of comedic what have you of like Clooney and, Car- and, and Ice Cube really working funny. on a set. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed, but there's a, there's a fucking cameo from David O. Russell in that epilogue. He's the one being <laughs> choked by the guy in the, um, oh, is he? in the movie. Uh, so like on top of all of that, there's that because what I think it does for me anyway, is it kind of undercuts the whole fucking thing. Like I just, I love the tone that this movie struck comedically throughout I didn't need the movie to end with that comedic button. It's it's so tough because it's that moment, the, the, those that final kind of cut sequence. You know, th- there's there is just a kind of brattiness to the yeah. '90s that, sure. that this movie. I mean, which I loved at the time because I was a brat. But this sure. movie does not really have that, and so to suddenly have it right at the end, I think you're right. That 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 maybe even more so than the actual you know third act finale. I totally kind of agree the with you. Guys. <laughs> These are the assholes that paid for this movie because I'm sure that they you know were just like I don't really get it. At least they leave with a happy kind of like funny quirky note, and and that's a bummer because I think the movie deserves better. Couldn't agree more. I think that's right. I, I think that's right. And again, it's 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 the tough problem of when a movie has been doing so many interesting things so much, and just the very end is the least interesting part. You know, there, there is just that. It's the difficulty of to what extent do we credit it for everything else it was doing, and to what extent yeah. is this just you know the the the, the final button 
is the bit that you're kind of left with that yeah i mean and again at the time i loved the ending because it was you know it's that kind of quick shot rapid kind of snarky chiron thing that was so in right then and that's (laughs) that's the part that's kind of aged the worst it's that's the most guy richie-ish guy richie-ish part of the movie and unfortunately yeah the 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 chirons throughout the whole film didn't really work for me they really only used up top to introduce everybody but it's done to your point in such a like snarky 90s way i actually liked the the first one's quite a bit because i thought uh i thought spikes try wants to be troy was funny and i also thought like maybe it's heavy-handed but ice cubes on a four-week pay vacation from detroit says quite a bit um i want to just i want to highlight one other thing because it's one of my favorite moments in the film it's one of the funniest moments in the film and it feels like unfortunately it's mirrored a little bit at the end which is at the uh near the beginning when they're all talking in the tent around the map and Clooney says, if we do this right, we can quit our day jobs uh, unless you want to keep doing your day jobs. And the cutaways to to Mark Wahlberg tearing open a fucking printer ink cartridge and it's yeah. spilling all over him <laughs> to, to Ice Cube throwing fucking uh, uh, luggage, luggage on on a conveyor belt. And then Spike just with a sawed off shotgun just shooting <laughs> stuffed animals on a fucking car saying, I didn't really have a day job. <laughs> It's just that, it's that cutaway, that cutaway to him like shooting the the truck, like that is the golden age of comedy cutaways, right Correct. there. Yeah. Like, like like everything after that could only be kind of a letdown. But I agree. I, I, I'm, as good as I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Like that that stuff, that style. There, it's done really, really well for sure. Here, it's done in such a like winky, shitty way, whereas. Those cutaways are they're gut punches because we've all had those jobs, right? Like whatever it is, a job you're just like fuck. Like and and yeah. in my head, I remember sitting in the theater in '99 and being like, I, I mean, I've had some shitty jobs, but I guess there are people that are just like, yeah. well, I guess being in the military is just another shitty job, right? Like it, it's it's that I think works. I think that's ninety five percent of people in the military. I'm sure. I'm sure. I think that, and, and I think that should constantly be remembered and reiterated in the halls of Congress. <laughs> the people who you are sending yes. to war, it really is. Yes. I and and don't get me wrong. I know that there are people who are not there for that reason. My sure. my wife's first cousin is like in the military, and he went to Michigan. And he's going to Harvard Law. Like he absolutely is there because he believes in the cause uh, on a higher level. But for the most part, it's people who, you know, it's their best option. And that's very upsetting. You guys are making me realize that there is a real strong, like, sibling relationship with this movie, with, with those moments and the idea of it as a job to something like Office Space or the, the sort of, like, you know, Dilberty parts of Fight Club. Like, I, I, I hadn't really thought of that before, but it's, it is that same sense of, like, we need to break out of, especially for these three guys, their totally awful jobs that they have back home in, you know, any way possible. I don't know. It's, it's something well, that's in the very, air that's a that very, time. I mean, we've talked about this um, a little bit, Kenny, but you know, the, the sort of like uh, desire not to conform is definitely a thing that you can feel throughout 99. You can feel sort of this like millennial kind of, and by that, I mean the changing of the millennium, this idea of, of feeling like you need to break out of something. Does that make, do you know what I'm saying, Kenny? It's, but it's not, yeah, I agree with you completely, yeah. but it's not nothing. The thing about, the late 80s, early 90s, Gen X slacker period was we are going to not conform and we are going to replace it with doing nothing. 
right? That's our, our big thing is like, this is all absurd. Yeah. And instead, what we're going to do is nothing. I want to stay home and, and get high and watch Beavis and Butthead. That's what I'm which I, which, which I, I, you know, fine. Teach yeah, their own. Yeah, sure. uh, what happened around the turn of the millennium, and I think, Darren, it's a really good point. You know, there, are, there is kind of a, um, a kindred spirits thing between this office base and Fight Club was we're going to replace it with something. Right. right, right and right, right. it usually is, you know, I've been saying this in a relation to a, a project that I'm working on right now, but I think this movie really speaks to this as well, that the American dream is not to get rich. The American dream is to get rich quick. Right. And that's what these three movies kind of have in common. Now, I get Fight, Fight, Fight Club is a little different, but Fight Club isn't so much about material, materialism, but it is about changing it all right now on a large scale Being trapped this idea yeah, of, and, yes, yeah but yeah. like but like not just like instead like the gen x thing was like unibomber almost like it was like okay. i'm out of here you fucking you plebes can fend for yourself whereas the fight club thing is like oh no yeah. i'm you don't see what's going on here but i'm gonna tear it all down matrix too now where where on this line though do we graph Join me in the club of immortal cannibals from Ravenous. Where where does Robert Carlyle <laughs> fall? Yeah, on that? it's a very I good question. Were, I thought you were talking about Army Hammer. Yeah, I did too. Uh, hey, hey, I did it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Join me in the club of immortal cannibals. Yeah, you know, we, did, we did that already. We did that was one of our first movies. That was one of our early ones. I I, I will say though, I, I I kind of this feels like a, a a good a good way to kind of wrap the episode in the sense of. We talked up top, and by Kenny, I mean like back on Eyes Wide Shut on our first episode. We talked a lot about the auteurs of this year, right? The the David O. Russells, the David Finchers, the Paul Thomas Andersons, um, the Mike Judges. These, these guys um, who somehow snuck in studio doors and the studios allowed them to make these Pretty gigantic, expensive movies. How wonderful is that? It's an amazing thing. Um, And this film feels so emblematic of that, of this, like, we... we we got it, guys. Like, we've snuck in the door, and they're letting us do shit, and... I mean, we all know where Hollywood has gone since then, but it, it's just, it's fascinating how thematically they all kind of connect in some way or another in terms of, yeah. of, of sort of anti-establishmentarianism and trying to sort of, you know, shake up the system. Um, but then this film kind of trips over itself in landing that yeah. punch, which is a bummer. You know, it's interesting. I just want to say one thing about that that I think is kind yeah. of interesting. The, the fun of those movies is exactly what you're saying is that they're all doing it under the noses of the biggest yep. conglomerates of the world. Like there is this, like there's this rapscallion quality to it. I'm, I'm thinking who does that now? Cause uh, it's not that, it, well, there's someone who does it. Yeah. It's Megan Ellison, right? Yes. Yeah. Or a two, four. Yeah. Yeah. For lower budgets. Yeah. But yeah, like I, I the, the problem with a two, four and, and Megan Ellison, I guess it's not a problem, but it, it's ups- it upsets me a little bit. It's like they're totally game. They're totally on board with it. So there is no like there is no sticking in the sticking yeah. anything in the eye. It's just it's it must be it must be weirdly liberating for all of these Annapurna directors to just for the most part be able to do what they want to do. Yeah, and I guess that makes better movies 
sometimes, but on the on the other hand, like I do think the they kept the kind of that rogue rebellious streak that you get out of these ninety nine movies where you have to hide the ball a little more. Yeah. Like the Matrix and being John Malkovich, like we know what the Matrix is about now. We're about to, you know, talk about John Malkovich at some point. Yeah. Like that's wild and exciting. Today it's just all out there on Front Street. Yeah. I kind of wonder if it's partially the energy of if as a filmmaker you need to be justifying what you're doing like every day of a project to the powers that be versus versus you know today if by some miracle you do get a megan ellison budget she's kind of like go away you know i I, I assume that's probably healthier psychologically but i wonder if that explains why with a lot of the 99 movies there's just that like we are putting it all on screen and every day i am i am reproving the need to do the kinetic chrome negative double budget film like i I, I don't know that's that seems pretty specific to that time and place that kind of energy whether it's comedic dramatic action mm-hmm. fantasy or in three kings which to me the one thing that stands out about it is like it was a, about recent history like there is that right. sort of slightly journalistic edge to it quote marks around journalistic <laughs> sure i'm gonna I'm try to make this point as objectively <laughs> as possible though it's going to sound very subjective uh there is no need for subtext when everybody's fine with you just putting it all out as text. And that makes for less interesting art to me. So you have things today that's really kind of, that are really exciting and provocative and it's very cool that they exist. Like for instance, uh, I've really enjoyed I May Destroy You, but I May Destroy You is all out there. I know exactly what's going on with I May Destroy You. Whereas we've had movies about people who are oppressed and people who are abused and people who are um, marginalized in some way that had to be told opaquely uh, that are kind of more fun to unwrap when you had to unwrap them, when they had to be slipped past the gatekeepers. So I do mean that objectively. I, I, I do want people to be able to make movies they want to make, but there is no point to me anymore in being subtextual except to be more artistic, which isn't a thing. Like subtext doesn't equal art. You know what I mean? For sure. And I think, I I mean, Kenny and I have had this discussion on on many occasions about many different things, but I mean, I, I don't think that you're going to make the best art without having something to push against you if you don't don't have some sort of a box some sort of restraint that's being put on you and again listen there's exceptions to every rule there are any number of filmmakers that have no you know caveats on what they can do and they make brilliant films so i'm not sitting here and saying that it's impossible but i'm saying by and large speaking for myself anyway notes are good (laughs) like notes help you at least crystallize what you're trying to say if nothing else but so kenny do you want to rate this yeah. Do you want to uh, go first? Yeah, I'll go first. I, th- I know when I saw this the first and only time, it was in 2002. I was uh, living with my friends in college, and we would watch a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. And we just thought this was a cool, fun movie. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> I always thought this was a great movie. I, I really, I really you know, didn't remember any of the uh, bigger, bigger issues at work. I sure. thought this was was a heist movie that took place in the uh, in the Gulf War. So I think I always had it around in, in 85. 
Yeah. Um, watching this movie, it was like it was like a stock market crashing for me in terms of my rating. In the beginning, I was like, I'm going to give this a 99. This is one of the best movies of the year. This I want this to to be one of the movies I put at the top. And then it, as I got further and further, I'm like, maybe the, I because li- I basically keep a running log of what my I had like an 85, then I had a 78, and I landed on a 72, which is not good. Um, I was going to give it a 72 after this discussion. And Darren, I don't know if you know the way we do this, but we do your rating in 99, rating before the discussion, rating after discussion. After this discussion, I'm going way up. Um, I loved this discussion. I love what this movie brings out. Uh, there's so much good here. I can't penalize it for um, what I think was a misstep at the end too harshly. I'm going to go all the way up to an 89. I think this is a Excellent movie, and uh, very happy that I rewatched it. I'm very happy we got to talk about it instead of me walking around the next time I talk about Three Kings and being like, well, you know, it has a lot of geopolitical implications for people to talk about. So uh, thanks for, <laughs> thank you for letting me play that out of this podcast and come to this conclusion. Um, I had, it's, it's funny, we, we had somewhat, we had different perspectives, but we landed at the same number. Um, I, 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 in 99, really loved the film, similar to you, Kenny. I was pretty high on it. Um, I probably would have given it a, probably even a 95. Like, I, I thought it was, and part of that, I think, was a little bit of me being like, it didn't get the love in 99. So it was kind of like the movie that I could be like, was this yours. movie's fucking great. And you guys, yeah. you know, so, so there was that. So I probably would have given it about a 95 back then. Watching it yesterday, I still really liked it a lot. And I probably, I probably would have had it at like a 92, if I'm being honest. I was, I was pretty high on it. Um, I'm, I'm at an 89 now because I do think that, and, and just, I know that this feels like it's minutiae in terms of small numbers. We talked but, you down after. after but I, I, I think that I, I really, you guys did help me. The, the ending did bump me yesterday, but I couldn't put my finger necessarily on why. I knew that there was a bunch of stuff that just wasn't all working for me. Um, I didn't love that the prisoners were kind of almost used like a MacGuffin by the end there. Like I just, it, it, it just doesn't, it didn't just, it just didn't totally land. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm, I'm at an 89 now. Um, I think, I still think it's one of the best films of 99. Um, but it I is. think that, but I think that it definitely struggles with its, honestly, like the last seven minutes or 10 minutes of the film are, are just tricky. It's also like, and I don't want to, I don't want to belabor this point, but like <laughs> the fact that they're all about to be carted away. These prisoners are about to basically be killed. But then, like, the three of them, like, exchange a nod that it's okay that uh, they give away the fucking gold. It's like, no, guys, we, you, you got to do better than this. But anyway, uh, Darren, what did you think of it in 99? What did you think of it before? What did you think about it after? 99, it was straight 100. Like, I would have said, <laughs> I, I, I would have said, like, this is a sure. perfect movie. Sure. But I also would have said that about a few other movies in 1999, which are now way, way lower for me. <laughs> Fight Club being, Fight Club being probably like oh, the wow. most okay. among it. Like, okay. Fight Club for me is now honestly like take off the one and the first zero. And that's more or less where it's at. I shouldn't wow. say that. I shouldn't say that. There's, there's things about the movie that, that work. Okay. But, Wait, uh, Fight Club's but, a zero? Fight Club's pretty low for me now. Um, uh, <laughs> In fact, I, I, in fact, probably in my lifetime, that movie has aged the worst. Interesting. But I, I'll just say this one quick thing about Fight Club, because I, I think that Kenny and I haven't figured out who we're going to have on for the episode. Um, the last time I saw it, I saw it with a, with a female friend of mine. And 
we need to have a female guest for Fight Club because there's a part yes. of me that feels like Very that true. film has sitting next to a female friend in a theater filled mostly with men laughing at jokes made me feel not good about myself. I think like, that's true. It's, think it's, 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 a, it's a very complicated movie. So Three Kings, 99. Uh, I think now after this conversation, um, uh, feeling like it accomplishes so much in its really awesome middle. For me, it's a 90. I think it breaks 90. I think it's, you know, I can't tell if I'm being unfair because as you said, it's really just the last seven minutes I struggle with yeah. or if that just kind of sums up how ultimately damaging the, the yeah. that part is. But even thinking about the kind of Wahlberg interrogation scenes and what they do and how much they kind of stand even apart from the movie, I think there's so much, um, so much great stuff in Three Kings uh, that uh, really, even in an awesome year for movies, I think still makes it really stand out. I, I, you know, this is, first of all, you know, perhaps most importantly, Darren, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and talking about the movie with us. Cause I think that, you know, Kenny and I have been, we've been talking about this film for a while, how we were going to do it, what, how, and, and I honestly don't think it could have gone any better. I don't know about you, Kenny, but it feels like it really kind of, it, yeah. it, it hit all the, all the sweet spots of what's great about the film, the film's flaws, you know? Um, so it, it's been really great to talk with someone who, um, who enjoys the film, but, but, you know, was able to kind of dig into it with us. So I really do appreciate that. Honored to be here and honored that we were able to have a full conversation about the recent history of American imperialism <laughs> right at the top. You want to yeah, get into the, that before, before the summer? Yeah, yeah, just can't, get into that. Can't stop. I can't stop. It's crazy. I mean, like, no one has benefited from American capitalism more than me. And yet, nobody is like, <laughs> has like more vitriol towards it. I, I'm, you know, it's a real, it's a real horrible, uh, I'm, I'm the worst hypocrite of them all. But hey, you know. Oh, but, but truly though, truly though, like this is the conversation about Three Kings I've wanted to have for oh, a really you. long time. So oh, it, it, th thank you guys for having me. And really, again, we just say to all the listeners, this is a movie that more than withstands that kind of deep read, even if the movie itself can't always follow through on, on what it's trying to say with those things. I totally agree with you that, that and I think Kenny would as well, um, that, you know, we have, we have put a lot of films under a microscope, obviously, on this podcast. And... <laughs> Uh, a lot of them can withstand it, but the truly great ones are ones like this, where you can have that type of conversation. You can you can understand its weaknesses and still be able to obviously suggest that it's that it's a great film. Um, next week, wait, I'm wait, curious before oh yeah, before yeah, Darren yeah. goes, yeah, yeah. I wonder, uh, I'm 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 really interested to hear how hard it is to write the bullseye every week. <laughs> well, first of all, you don't uh, do it anymore, right? I do. Uh, oh, it's, it's every, and I know it's, it's every month now. I know. Don't, it's, it's, it's every month, so that makes it. Uh, but what, but you little, were doing it weekly at some point, right? No, uh, I, oh, I, I okay. took over. Right. I, I took over in my weekly magazine's uh, current monthly phase. Uh, the the um, previous writer was Mark Stedeker, who was much funnier than I am. Um, the Bullseye is an interesting uh, thing to work on, mainly because with a monthly publication schedule now, we're a little bit less timely than the, than the piece used to be. Um, I think that maybe encourages a little bit more uh, purposefully non-topical absurdity, which I hope works yes. for readers. Um, but uh, it, it, it's, let me tell you, coming up with one punchline is difficult. So coming up with 19 or 20 um, is an interesting ongoing challenge, um, but uh, uh, hopefully it's still kind of fun for, for, for people in its current uh, monthly phase. Well, I... I think this is a compliment. I read it. I read it last. 
because <laughs> I know that some people say they read it first. I do not because that's not the way I operate. I always save dessert till the end like a normal person. <laughs> so I read it last. It is my favorite part of the of the issue. I always that's too kind. That's I know too I, kind. Congratulations because Dean uh, and I'm very very happy to have you on this podcast. It really is a blast. I, I too, to be, uh, you know, to be uh, here. Thank you. similar to Kenny entertainment weekly was, was uh, a hallmark of my, of my adolescence. And I still subscribe to the magazine. I think it's fantastic. Um, uh, yeah. So again, you know, it went so monthly much. right when I needed it to go monthly because I have too many things. And now, <laughs> now I can fit it in, but you know, we knew, we knew that this schedule would work a little bit better for orientating into your schedule. That for was Kenny. a big part of it. Yeah, that that Kenny, was a big part. Yeah. Of There's it. this we, one we, guy. We listened to our demographics. Okay. We, we know what when people I, need. When I move, <laughs> when I move and I moved quite a bit in my life, the first thing I do is change my entertainment weekly subscription address. <laughs> It's like the only thing I think of. So I will literally be paying, paying uh, like gas bills on like a house ago for months and months. But you, wait, you get a hard copy of it still? Of course. I've, oh, I'm I, digital. I wish I was in my room. I could show it to you. No, of course I do. You, got, you guys That's are too right. kind. You it's guys on my bedside kind. table. Really, really. <laughs> uh, my wife knows to give it to me right away. <laughs> so, so Darren, long live print. Long live print. <laughs> I, am, I am curious to hear your thoughts, if you have any, on uh, the film that we're doing next week. We have Toby Herman coming on for, for Liberty Heights, Liberty Heights, which is the Barry Levinson film. I've never seen it. Here's what I know about Liberty Heights, and I have to get this on the record. Um, So uh, one of my fantastic EW critic predecessors, Lisa Schwartzbaum, uh, a critic who was so formative for me and her work with Owen Gleiberman, um, was basically where my love of movies came from. Um, In her review of Liberty Heights, (laughs) she discussed how Barry Levinson basically said she was the reason for the making of the movie because of some nasty things she said about Sphere. Um, so so I, I, I'm not sure how much of the formation of Liberty Heights was defined by that, but all I know That's about fantastic. it is that was the movie Barry Levinson made to spite Lisa Schwartzbaum. And, you know, as, as critic, as critics, you know, that's not the intention, but, but that's, that's kind of, that's kind of something that's something to put on your mantle if a director makes a movie. To <laughs> I gotta to bring you. this full circle because this is this is amazing Please. to me. You know why Sam Levinson made Malcolm and Marie? Despite oh, that bitch from the LA Times. Say, yeah. These oh, people are right. crazy. Like these <laughs> Levinsons, what are you guys like? You guys are nuts. <laughs> With these Levinsons. That's wild. That's nuts. That's wild. That that's really the only funny. time I ever heard that. The, the only other time I heard someone yep. make something that was in direct response to a critic. I mean, Kevin Spacey made something in direct response to Paul Thomas Anderson. But uh or like a I think a in it cool news. He's a moron. Uh, but I've anyway. never heard someone so uh, so affected by yeah blatantly. so blatantly affected yeah. by a critical review that they made a whole movie. But, but these guys did father and son. Something man, man Levinson's versus yeah. critics. It's it's an ongoing. It's it's. I don't even know. I, mean, yeah, I didn't mean to say that bitch like I, but that's the line from the movie. That bitch from New York from the yeah. L.A. Times. Do you think? That it was part of the pitch. Which one? <laughs> like that Sam Levinson. <laughs> I'm gonna make my like, Liberty Heights. I don't. Th- well, no. I just I, I, I can't help but talks. feel like if we're if we're talking about like 
inception. The idea of like that this LA Times critic sent Sam Levinson on such a fucking, you know, whatever you want to call it, that he needed to make this film. I refuse to believe that when he pitched the idea to someone that it didn't slip out, (laughs) that there wasn't some element of being like, the critics don't get me, but like we're fucking doing, I don't know. It's just, it's the whole thing. Critics are so nice to him. I don't care what he says. Like critics are so nice to him. I like, come on, dude. Like you are, you are literally the last young white. uh, You're the last young white nepotistic case who gets to make a movie of, or a TV show about a young black girl? The last one. Story. That's the, the la- last, you're the last guy on the list. He is. And nobody gives you shit for it. <laughs> you, you get great critical reviews. Critics are so fucking nice uh, to him. I don't mean to be mean to him. I think it's a yep. good show. I, that's not what I really I mean. I love you yeah, for it. I think it's, it. I think it's great. Yeah. I haven't seen it. It's, right. it's all right. I, I don't know it's if it's fine, great or anything, but, but I. Uh, I mean, I mean, listen. Anything is better than Assassination Nation. <laughs> that's what I, I heard. Assassination Nation was inta- was was insufferable. Like you couldn't watch it. Basically, that, that's that's like. I mean, we we all had to come back from that movie. Yeah, but the idea, the, the idea, well, this guy doesn't think he gets a pass. I mean, come on, bro. I know. Uh, thank you so much, Darren, for coming on. We hope that you'll come back in the future for something else. Um, this was a blast, and uh, we truly appreciate you taking the time, Darren. And please consider me for your next screen draft. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. Great to meet you. Great to talk to you. Thank you guys for having me. Doing great work. Continuing to go through one of the most crucial years in, in history. Thank, uh, um, thank you again. One last thing. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989. Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Also, please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's. Thank you to Ernie and Will for producing our episode, Sullivan for our social media, Yonkatas for our artwork and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.